Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Well, let's read together then uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The conclusion to this, or where this is taken up again in the New Testament, in many places, but for example, in Romans 8.29, that we are, as it says, being conformed to the image of his Son. There is the original image, and then there is the fulfillment of the image, the completion of the image. Maybe there is, in some way, a marring of the image with the fall. And then a regaining and a restoration and a completion. And Jesus is the perfect representation of the image of God. And we are being made like him. And so what was begun in Genesis is completed in Christ. That image is being perfected in us. And so part of recognizing what Christ is doing is recognizing the obstacle he is defeating. And so just the word image is actually the word selim. It's the same word in the Old Testament for the word idol. The divine image in humans enables them to be creators of images, of idols. And what we see in the fall, of course, is the fracturing of the image. And this fracturing we could describe in many ways, but one of the obvious ways in the story in Genesis is with male and female that they become antagonistic or between mind and body that is that they become ashamed of their body or maybe heaven and earth because we see that the garden of Eden is removed then and its precincts in some way are no longer available on earth maybe the way to say this is there is a divide between the transcendent where God is and the eminent, the creaturely and the divine. At least there is an antagonism, a tension. And shame marks the antagonism. It says they were naked and not ashamed. But that is no more. We see they're ashamed. And so we can say animals have no shame as they are lacking in spirit or soul. And angels have no shame because they lack flesh and organs. And so humans have shame because spirit and flesh are in discord. And I'm not saying we lose the image, but the image is marred. And we begin projecting and making images. Male, female split, spirit, flesh split, heaven, earth. That is that dualism, divide, marks this fractured thinking. And so where humans once synthesized God and the creation were brought together, and certainly that's what's happening in Christ, these differences then become divided. 
And so look, let's look at another passage. And this one's in Isaiah 44:19, that again is using the word image. Where God made humans, now humans would make God. In 44:19, in this whole chapter, by the way, if you look at it. But verse 19, but he also fashions a God and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares a meal. So we kind of see this guy, he's making an idol. He prepares it, turns, and he makes his lunch. He roasts his meat, eats his fill, and he warms himself. He says, ah, I'm warm. I see the fire. And from the rest, he makes a god. So he turns from his lunch and he worships the other half of the piece of wood. His idol. He bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, save me. You are my God. It says they know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see. And their minds closed so they cannot understand. The guy made it. And yet he seems blind to that fact. The idol illustrates, I think, the corruption of the human image. But the way in which idolatry works, and it can work in two ways. That is, the idol, you know, in one instance, can be a complete materialization and reduction of God. Literally a worshiping of the material wood or metal. Or it may represent the absolute transcendent and inaccessible nature of God. That is, idolatry illustrates the problem we have. In certain forms of Buddhism and Hinduism, the idol is simply a marker of the ineffable, the absolute transcendence of whatever it is they're worshiping. And on the other hand, like in Isaiah here, and in much of popular religion. And in fact, it may happen at the same temple or shrine. Some people literally worship the idol. Some see the idol as a marker of something that's inaccessible. Absolute transcendence or refusal of transcendence. But the point is there's a split and a refraction occurs. We can see the same thing in male and female. You know, the original image with the fall, there's an opposition. And this actually gets taken up into idolatry in the very often the idol is represented as a male and the female idolater is that all of those worshiping are considered female and lusting after the male. At least that's the picture in many of the biblical prophets. And so where the original image was that here is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The two are made one. And we know that's the picture once again in Christ. But the Bible equates idolatry with an absolute separation and difference and a kind of heightened desire. Ezekiel 23, the picture is of the idol representing the male physical organ and the female lusting after it, and then this gives rise to child sacrifice. The idols then hold out a promise of some sort of relationship that is actually impossible. Whether we're talking about material, sexual, or we're talking about spiritual relationship, 
there's an impossibility of relationship. And the result is then exponential desire and child sacrifice. And I think this is kind of gives us the anatomy of desire gone bad. The drive to relate by means of one organ, the reproductive organ, cannot be coordinated with the heart, the other organ. And this discord, this difference is reified and made absolute so that there is a false transcendence. And I think this is, Paul says, the idol is nothing, but this nothing is made absolute. Another way of saying the same thing, I'm just describing different ways in which this antagonism between body and soul or between the creature and the creator occurs. Paul talks about the law of the mind and the law of the flesh are pitted against one another. The mind, in Paul's description, has somehow constituted itself through a division with the body, with the flesh. And so we could think of the mind and the body being pitted against one another. Alienation from God, alienation from one another. This is why the law is brought in, to regulate this kind of antagonism. So we could say it in the largest terms, the transcendent and the imminent stand in antagonism. Actually, this is the way we could talk about Greek philosophy. I know how excited you all get with Greek philosophy. Plato and Aristotle, who are really more than just philosophers, and many people say they're the founders of Western thought. But in one form, in Plato, the focus is on the transcendent, on the forms. And in Aristotle, the focus is on the imminent. They're actually pitted against one another. This dialectic of difference defines both. This is what's happened in world religions. If you go and study religion in the university, and this is kind of backward to what is normally happening in the university, the father of modern religious studies, Marcia Eliade, creates even the possibility for the study by talking about religion as a unified category that in that it's transcendent, it's absolute, it's noumenal, it's sui generis. And what he's saying by this, that religious experience is not something you can really talk about. It's inevitable. It doesn't coincide with historical pressures and influences. Religion is beyond definition, he says. And all religion, though it is about that which is most real, you can't really say anything about it. Of course, for religion to be unique in the university, this is partly what it takes. Well, is it just sociology? Is it just psychology? And then on the other hand, you have somebody like Peter Berger up at the University of Chicago. He's, he says, well, no, religion is just sociology. It's like the idol maker here. He just projects onto the world his image of God. And so in one instance, it's beyond study, it's distinct, it transcends the historical, social, and psychological. On the other hand, it is completely social. It's completely historical. In the one instance with Eliade, we have Platonism, and that there is no actual object to study, nothing in which to ground the study. And the articulation and striving you know, we do have the world's religions, but of course the object of their religion is not accessible. It's impossible to bring 
the creaturely and divine into relationship. And then there is a kind of vague encompassing of every religion. Peter Berger, who by the way was, I think he was Presbyterian, and yet he made no room in his own theory for any kind of transcendence. His is kind of the Aristotelian possibility of finding the transcendent fully explained in the imminent. And so where Eliade leaves us with pure abstraction, Berger gives us a complete empirical explanation. You know, the man shapes the idol, that's step one. And he sets the idol out there, he objectifies the idol, that's step two. You know, he turns and eats his lunch, turns back, oh, he's not even aware that he made the idol. And then he worships the idol, the idol acts back upon him. That's the way Berger describes human interaction with culture and society. And the religion, in this instance, just is the canopy, he says, that holds it all together. For Berger, God or the sacred is constituted by the world. And of course the question is, where is Christianity in this? Is the God of the Bible so transcendent that we cannot speak of him? Well, no, he's revealed himself. We know that he's imminent. But is he so imminent that we can fully encompass him in the historical? Now I'm saying all this, this may sound abstract and, well, how does this pertain? I think it pertains because we tend to think of Christianity in one of these terms or the other. Is the church like that of Eliade, in which that which we worship is so transcendent that it's of no earthly good? Or is it so earthly and creaturely that it does not take us beyond the world? And so the thesis antithesis of the divide, it certainly conditions the answer. Whether we're talking about Plato and Aristotle, Berger or Eliade, pragmatism, materialism. And so certainly there is the transcendent. We need ideas, we need the mind. On the other hand, we understand that ideas arise only in the world. But actually, do you see that in each case, God disappears and is actually replaced by the world. In Eliade's world, you just have the world because God is so transcendent. In Berger, we just have the world and we really can't speak of God. We need the transcendental. We need the imminent. We need the pragmatic and the theoretical. Sociology of religion needs the study of religion. And this pertains to the church because the kingdom of heaven has come to earth. Faith and practice cannot be separated and I'm afraid that we've separated them. None of these systems has the means of synthesizing themselves for accounting for its opposite. The image has been split. There is a divide. And there is no bringing the two together. The sui generis reading of religion, you know, this is not unrelated to sui generis notions of Christianity. That the church somehow exists apart from a particular culture, a particular society. And we imagine, oh, the culture out there has its own innate essence apart from Christ. What is more real, the church or the world? The culture of the church or the culture of the world? 
This disembodied, transcendent notion of Christianity, I think, reveals itself in a kind of incapacity to imagine a real world kingdom on earth. That is, the church is the kingdom of God on earth. An alternative culture, an alternative people. And in this form of thought I'm describing, the church cannot be a holistic, imminent reality constituting its own culture. If we don't recognize the reality of the synthesis in Christ. We spiritualize the body of Christ. We make the, the body of Christ too otherworldly. And culture is too much the essence of this world. That is, I think we imagine the kingdom of the world more real than the kingdom of God. There is a singular synthesis of creator and creation, of the imminent and transcendent, of God and human, and that is Jesus Christ, the God-man, synthesizes, he brings together human and divine. And so there, this is not an end point, this is our beginning point. This is the presumption in apprehending Christianity, but this is the way I would teach a class on religion. We can't do Eliade. We cannot do Berger. Certainly they have something to contribute. We can't simply do Plato or Aristotle. These realms, they don't have the means of bringing the dualism together. Christian synthesis brings together and utilizes the opposed pairs. Faith and practice, doctrine and action, heaven and earth, creator and creation, the sociology of religion and religious studies. We have a subject. And so the church is to be a culture of practice. Do you have faith? What does that faith mean? It shows itself in a particular set of practices. How we eat, how we organize ourselves. We inhabit an alternative kingdom, an alternative politic. And so in the divide between faith and practice, between God and creatures, we imagine faith is devoid of practice. But faith is embodied and practiced so that it is a conviction that shows itself in the form of life that we live. We could call this a practical understanding. Doctrine or belief discloses itself, its meaning, only within the practices and convictions of the culture that embraces it. And so let me conclude with a series of scriptures that say as much. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Colossians 3.10 And we have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The image is restored. There is a transformation of the mind. There is a new knowledge and a new practice. 2 Corinthians 3.18 and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We are being transformed into the image of Christ. 
The image was fallen, marred, and now it's being restored. And finally, 1 Corinthians 6.17 But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. We have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Our personhood shows forth the image of eternity. And it is in Christ that this image is being completed in us. The heavenly and the human, the divine and the creaturely, the theory and the practice, faith and works, they're brought together. And that synthesis is occurring in the body of Christ, in his people, in the church. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org. Dot org.